If you have your Bible with you today, go ahead and open them to First uh, Peter, uh, chapter one. First Peter, chapter one. We're starting a series this morning in the book of First Peter. Uh, it's a small book, only five chapters, and we'll continue with this for quite some time. There's a lot of substance in it, and so uh, uh, turn to First Peter, chapter one. If you don't have a Bible with you, then uh, inside your bulletin, there's an insert that has the passage printed, and you're welcome to use that as well. Now hear uh, the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, I'll read the first 12 verses. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with blood, May His grace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which the angels desire to look. This is the Word of God. You know, a little over a year ago, there were 21 uh, Egyptian Coptic uh, Christians who were martyred uh, on the shores of the Mediterranean by ISIS. And uh, I don't know, I, I could not watch the, the clip, the video that ISIS put out. It was a little too uh, graphic. I usually can handle things like that, but I just couldn't watch. Uh, they made these 21 Egyptian men kneel down by the shore, and then they had 21 ISIS uh, terrorists uh, behind them, and they uh, beheaded them. Um, shortly after this incident, the Coptic Church, the Coptic Orthodox Church in Egypt, commissioned a new icon. And those of you that are as Protestants, we you know we think all that stuff is superstition, and and uh, some of it may be, but. Uh, there's also a beauty uh, to the iconography of the East and uh, in, the, in the Roman church in the West that I think we fail to recognize. And this icon was commissioned uh, by the church to 
honor these 21 martyrs. And it's uh, quite amazing. It's a, uh, a very beautiful icon, but it's also very uh, disturbing as well. Um, it was said that these Egyptians who were Coptic Christians uh, were captured by ISIS and, and martyred, that there was a, a, another man with them who was working in the same labor group who was not an Egyptian, he was a Ga- Ga- uh, from Ghana. Ghana. Sorry. Um, and when he saw the faith of these uh, Coptic Christians, he told the ISIS fighters, I want to be numbered with them. I'm one of them. And they took him and martyred him as well. He was the 21st martyr. And in the icon, uh, if you look it up on the internet, uh, you'll see they have a special little face, his face, uh, in the icon. For most of us, uh, if you're like me, that is so far removed, it is so abstract that I can hardly get my mind around it. It's almost unreal to think that there are people today in the 21st century who are being martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ, who are actually losing their life. You know, here in the West, we we suffer nothing by becoming a Christian. In fact, people join churches and then leave them regularly to go try out other churches. And there's a revolving door in the United States of people checking out other churches for for just for for preferences only. Just well, I like their music more than this, or I like this thing, or I like their pastor, which is the case here. I like their pastor more than anybody. You get the idea, folks. I mean, we are so fickle. We are so uh, uh, spoiled, if you will, in the West that we can't even imagine what it would be like to perhaps uh, lose a job or have someone tell you, I don't want to be your friend anymore. You know, if you tell somebody I'm a Christian, they usually, hey, that's nice, good for you. I, I'm, I'm uh, whatever, I worship trees, well, good for you. And everybody's okay with that. We suffer nothing in the West by being Christians. But if you leave these shores and you go to other places, it can be horrific. And this is what the world was like that Peter lived in and Paul and the other apostles. To become a Christian was to to leave the the normal world and become a whole other person, almost another race of people. In fact, they called Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. They only believed in one God, and that was not enough. The other thing that they didn't like about Christians was that Christians preached an exclusive God. In other words, there's only one Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Kaiser Kurias, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christos Kurias, Christ is Lord. Christ is King. And this shook the uh, Mediterranean world, and as, you many, as many of you know, it uh, turned literally has turned the world upside down. And so we're going to take some months now and look at this letter, 1 Peter, something maybe perhaps some, some of you are not uh, uh, familiar with, and, uh, and look at what it is to live in the world that Peter was describing. And hopefully, I, I believe that Christ the King, people in Christ the King, uh, that you will embrace this um, teaching 
of what it is to live in the last days. We looked at Joel these past few months. We were in the book of Joel. Now we're in the book of 1 Peter. Both of them are talking about what it is like to live in the last days. And hopefully you'll get your head around what it is to be a Christian living in the last days. And while it may be difficult for us to really identify with all that suffering, I'm going to try to do my best to show you uh, that there is, there is indeed a suffering that goes on. We're going to talk a little bit about it this morning uh, that is uh, real to ev- anyone and everyone. So let's, let's get going here this morning. Uh, we're going to look at three things. We're going to just look at the first couple verses, but basically we're going to talk about the tension that Christians live in in this world. The tension, first of all, of being elect. And yes, I did use the word elect uh, and exile. At the same time, elect and exile at the same time. Pilgrims, yet privileged. That'll be the first thing we talk about. Secondly, we'll talk about the tension, the tension that is created by the doctrine of election. What it means to be elect and the tension that creates. And if you don't have tension in your heart about election and predestination and all of that, something's wrong with you, you need to come see me. Because it should bother us. And I'll tell you why later. And finally, the tension of this whole idea of sprinkling with blood the way of grace and peace. So the tension of being elect in exile, the tension of the doctrine of election, and the tension of sprinkling uh, with blood uh, the way of grace and peace. So what is this tension that we all live in of being both elect and exile? Being both pilgrims... And at the same time, the Bible says we're very privileged people. We're pilgrims yet privileged. We're elect, privileged, yet we are exiles. And there's several parts to this. Let me just give you two real quickly. First, there's a physical sense of being exiled. This is persecution, real live persecution from the outside, like what these 21 martyrs suffered. There's also the persecution that uh, maybe we suffer in the West that, you know, if your boss finds out that you're a Christian, uh, maybe they have a bias against Christians and they pass you over for a promotion or they start making things hard on you or whatever the case may be. uh, There is a real persecution that can come depending on where you live from the outside to the inside to you personally. People can look down their nose at you. When I, uh, three years ago, when I started going to Scott's, uh, Scott's gym, uh, I guess they're not here today. Where are they? Where? Where are they moving? To another church? That's great. You don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm just kidding. Well, demerits for them, right? Treasury of merit. We're going to make some withdrawals from their trade. Just kidding. When I joined Scott's gym, I thought, great, I'm going to go. I'm, I don't want to be around any Christians. I'm going to go to the gym so I can be around some heathens, pagans. And sure enough, they were all there waiting. And I was so excited, and I'm working out, meeting people. Who are you? I'm him. Yeah, we all like each other. We're talking. What do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. All of a sudden, I had leprosy. I mean, it was so weird. So now, uh, I, I don't tell people that I'm a pastor. I tell them that I'm the, the uh, uh, chairman of the board of a multinational corporation. And that, uh, that I can get them a great job if they want. And then great benefits, you know, that kind of thing. You've heard that before. Uh, there's a certain kind of, 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 and that's mild. It just almost doesn't belong in the same breath as the 21 martyrs uh, 
in, um, that, that were martyred in the Middle East. But the idea is that there is indeed a persecution that comes from the outside. Karen Jobes, in her, in her commentary, uh, Dr. Jobes wrote this amazing uh, statement. Listen, because of their faith, they were marginalized in society, alienated in relationships, threatened with, if not experiencing, listen to the persecution they had, loss of honor, socioeconomic standing, and possibly worse. You see, by the time this persecution got going, at Peter's point in life, and I'll talk about that in a minute, by the time it got going, um, it, it wasn't the full-blown imperial persecution under Nero. It wasn't being thrown to the lions, uh, you know, in the, gladi- in the gladi- gladiators and all of that, the people losing their lives in that way. It was local, regional, and relational. People were just becoming Christians in their tribes and their villages and their families, and they were starting to experience persecution because of their Christian faith. So we're not talking about this intense imperial persecution that came later in the, in the time of Nero, we're talking about just a regional kind of persecution. Some of you may have felt, felt that. You become a Christian and you know, your family starts to look at you weird. Or you join the gym and you go and they don't want to talk to you because you're a pastor. Whatever the case may be. It can be very light, but it's still persecution. It's still coming from the outside. Alienated relationships. Marginalized in society. Threatened, if not experiencing Real, true persecution. Then there's the spiritual tension. And we'll talk about this in more detail as time goes on. But just this morning, I want to introduce these things to you. The spiritual tension of being elect. Of being one of God's people. There is a a real spiritual tension. Now, I agree in the West, we don't feel it too much. But I think once I explain some of it, maybe it'll make some sense to you. Where pilgrims... But at the same time, the Bible says we're privileged. We're elect. And yet at the same time, it's telling us we don't have a home here in this world. That this world is not our home. That our home is elsewhere. And so consequently, we have this dual, what some people call dual citizenship. I don't know if that's the best way to put it. Where we are um, in the world, yet we are not what? Of the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. Jesus actually said that himself. The Apostle Paul said, You know, I'm hard pressed between two things. Uh, He's writing to the church and he says, I'm hard pressed between two things. The desire to depart, to leave this life and be with Christ, which is far better, or to stay here and remain with you, which is more necessary. You see, he lived his life in tension. Jesus told the disciples in the upper room, you will live your life in tension. The Apostle Peter, in his second letter, we're not going to look at this one uh, this time, but he said this, since all this, he's talking about the creation, all of this is to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? There's the tension. You see, we look around and we say, gosh, all of this is going to be dissolved. Why should I bother? Why should I invest anything in this world? Why should I even try to make the environment better? Or politics better? Or my job site better? Or my family better? (coughs) Why should I even try? I mean, after all, it's all going to burn, right? So there's a tension there. 
The reality is, yes, while the creation will be dissolved, whatever Peter meant by that, there is going to be what? A new creation. And so God tells His people, while you're pilgrims, invest deeply in the world around you. Invest deeply in relationships. Don't ignore the, don't hunker and bunker and go out into the wilderness and hide in caves and pray that, you know, the whole world will pass you by. Which is a problem, I think, even among reformed people that say they are reformed Christians. They like to hunker and bunker and get in their little cloister and don't get out. Don't you peek out there and see is it safe? Is it safe? Folks, let me give you the good news it's not safe. It's terrible out there. And God wants you out there, He wants you in the world, but not of the world. And it creates a certain amount of tension. We struggle. Well, what, are we, you know, what movie should I see? What music should I look? What book should I read? What, then on and on and on. Really intense suffering. There is a real tension that exists in the Christian life. We are elect, and yet we are exiles. But folks, let me tell you, just our little church here, Christ the King, folks, it's time to grow up. You know, I'm going to tell you as your pastor, time to grow up. You know, quit fooling around with your Christianity. It's time to grow up. Instead of us being all prickly and, oh, you know, we just don't like our politics, we don't like our country, we don't like our president, we don't like this and we don't like that, we don't like the music and we don't like the pastor and he's wearing a blue blazer today and I want him to wear the black one. Come on, folks. Grow up. Because real persecution may actually be coming to this country. I doubt any of us in our lifetime will see it, but believe me, your children are going to see it, folks. And you better teach them the realities of the Gospel. That there are going to be some real hardships. And it's time for us to step up and be what we say we are. Do what we say. Walk the walk. Not just talk the talk. Yes, we are elect. Yes, we are privileged. But we are also exiles. And it puts us into a certain tension. And so... Think deeply as we go through this book of 1 Peter about what he's saying. What does a Christian life really look like? It's not a club. It's a real different kind of life that we are called to live. What about the tension of the doctrine of election? That you are chosen, but you're not choice, as some people have said. You're chosen, but you're not choice. What does that mean? What is the tension that has to go along with that? Chosen, but not choice. Look at the very first thing he says, according to the foreknowledge of God. What is foreknowledge? Well, l- let me explain it to you very simply. In the Bible, when God talks about foreknowledge, He can mean either foreknowing some future event, that He is privy to the future, something that we're not, that He knows the future, therefore He has foreknowledge of what will occur. But it can also mean, and in fact it does mean, almost 100% of the time, if not 100% of the time, when it's speaking of human beings, when he foreknows an event, it's because he knows the future. But when he foreknows a person, it, the, the same word takes on a completely different meaning. The context dictates that meaning. And so to foreknow means to for love, 
not just simply know something ahead of time, but to actually do something proactive. What we call the divine initiative. In other words, He stretches out His love to you before you ever know Him. Before you ever know who He is. Listen to what God told or, or, uh, uh, God told the, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You all have heard this. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. Now, he wasn't just talking about the Hebrews because there were many other people mixed up in that group. He was talking about not just an ethnic group of people, but a, a group of people from many tribes and nations, including the Hebrews who he had chosen. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not, it was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you or chose you. For you were the least and the fewest of the people. But it's because the Lord loves you. For love, for love, he knows you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping His oath that He swore to our fathers that the Lord has brought you out with this mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is what it means, folks. Now, the first thing that comes to our mind is, well, that's not fair. How can God just arbitrarily reach down into the world and pick and choose like He's got it like a daisy? I love them, I love them not, I love them, I love them. And hopefully, luckily, uh, you know, somehow, I get to be one of those leaves that gets picked and lucky for me. Right? No, of course not. He's not arbitrary about anything. He's very specific about what he does. He has reasons. But listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. I love this. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen Him. And He must have chosen me before I was born or else He never would have chosen me afterward. And He must have chosen me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find a reason in myself why He should have looked upon me with special love. You see, I don't know His reasons, folks. I can tell you personally, honestly, I cannot think of one reason in the world why He should have chosen me. I can think of a thousand and a thousand more as the hymn we sing says, why He shouldn't. But He does. And for that, we are eternally grateful. And we bow to Him in worship. And we rejoice. And we preach the Gospel. And we evangelize. And we go out and try to save the lost. The least. The last. And the lost. Because that's us. He is not unfair. He's not unjust. In fact, He's gracious and merciful. And what is the working, the outworking of that divine election, that foreknowledge that God has of you and I? What is it? Well, He gives us three things, and unfortunately we don't have time. Maybe I'll do a little bit on it next week. Sanctification of the Spirit. Obedience to Jesus. Look at the text, verse 2. Obedience to Jesus. And finally, for the sprinkling of His blood. Let me just say something very quickly about sanctification. That's a big word. It's a theological word. It's very packed, pregnant with meaning. Uh, 
What is sanctification? Sanctification, according to the Westminster Confession, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It's a work of God's free grace in your life. In other words, He is at work in your life. A work of God's free grace, whereby we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. You see, what sanctification of the Spirit means is that God, in your spirit, by His Spirit, see in in Greek there's no capital S or little s, you just have to get the context uh, from the words around it. We don't know if he's talking about Holy Spirit or if he's talking about your spirit. Or, which is my favorite choice, he's talking about both. He's talking about your spirit by the Holy Spirit that is being changed and transformed, that he's working on you, he's massaging, he's shaping. He's taking care of you. He's making certain that in every single part of your life, even in your sin, now I know that's kind of scary, but even He promises, even the evil that we do, He will turn to good. He will work that salvation out in us. The Apostle Paul put it like this, work out your own salvation, he's telling the people, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now it sounds like, oh God, it's all up to me. No, listen to the rest. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So what sanctification is, is you following God, obeying God, listening to Him, repenting, doing all the things that He's called us to do with the confidence and assurance that it's not all up to you. That by grace, by His love, He is active. And when you sin, when you fail Him, when you're disobedient and you really do a stinky thing, that He doesn't hold His nose and turn his back on you and say, you know what, get better and then come back and see me later. No, he like a parent who sees their injured child, he runs and throws his arms around us and embraces us and said, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. And he works with us, even in the bad we do, and in the good we do, and in everything that we do. He is at work in us, both to will and to work his good pleasure as we work. What about obedience to Christ? Very quickly, there's, there's several kinds of obedience. One is obedience, which is confessional or doctrinal. You know, the Christian faith is a substantial religion. It is a religion filled with substance. So you can't just worship whatever you want and call that God. Because as Dr. Tim Keller says, if you do that, it's just you. If you say, well, I, you know, I believe God is like this and this and this, and you don't have any objective truth in your life, then whatever God you're proposing or suggesting is just you. The Christian life is a life of content, of substance. That's why we beg you to come to Sunday school, and beg you to come to a Monday theology class, or get involved in a journey group. You need to build the foundational bricks of structure into your life so that you have a framework in which to live without it you're on very shaky ground. So there's a confessional, doctrinal fidelity that Christianity, we we confess the Scots Confession this morning, it's just packed with confessional fidelity. But there's also behavioral obedience, personal fidelity. In other words, a lot of Christians say, oh, Jesus is my king, but you know what? I'm not going to forgive this person for this. Oh, really? You're not going to forgive. 
Well, guess what, Christian? You're not going to be forgiven. How do you like that? And that's not my words. That's His words. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. What do you mean He's not going to forgive me? Let me say it again. He will not forgive you. Well, will I go to hell? I don't know. Will you? Nobody's squirming in their seats. I get terrified when I read things like that, don't you? Isn't obedience and loyalty and fidelity to your Savior, isn't it really high in the cone of certainty? Somebody say yes, please. I mean, is it high in the cone? Yes, it's very high in the cone of certainty. You don't get to pick and choose. Well, they hurt my feelings. Well, they did this to me. Well, they did. Well, you know what? They, they stole from me. Or, well, they, you know, they said bad things about me. Boo-hoo. Poor you. Think of those 21 martyrs. Think of Jesus on the cross for nothing He had done. Think about it. And then act obediently. Do what He says. Everyone who acknowledges Me before men. Listen to Jesus. You know, He was, he was tough. Everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I will acknowledge before My Father. Whoever denies Me, I will also deny before My Father. Very scary stuff, folks. What does obedience look like? Well, I, I, can't, I can't do the whole thing justice, but what it looks like is this. It looks like repentance. It looks like having a heart that is broken. We talked about this some weeks ago. A broken and humble heart. In other words, the fingers we're pointing, we point back to us. We say, no, 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 I'm not going to worry about them. I've got to think about me. I'm only responsible for me. And we start to turn inside, not in a bad way, not in an introvert, morbid introspection, but rather inward look. The inward look. The Puritans talk about taking an inward look at yourself, an honest look, and saying, you know what? Wow, there's th- I do that and I don't like what I see, folks. I have to confess, you know, it's easy to be your pastor and be, you know, f- kind of fake and have, uh, you know, all of my ducks in a row, but I don't. And if I don't, I know you don't. (laughs) That was funny, folks. All right. What's going on, Dave? Everybody's asleep today. Come on, wake up. Look, we all struggle with this, yes? We all do. We need to take that inner look. We need to understand what it is to truly be a repenter. A humble person, a humble a person that's looking inside, and then we need to trust and believe the gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus, me for you, and then finally we need to move to Him, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, in new obedience. Once we have experienced repentance unto life, the confession says we are to move to new obedience. And all of that happens what we call the gospel renewal cycle, and I can talk about that later. Finally, what is the tension? of living with this idea of the sprinkling of blood. Let me put this as as mildly as I can. Christianity, folks, honestly, is a gruesome religion. It is not a sterile and clean religion. It is extremely messy and it is extremely brutal. At the very heart and center of Christianity, you have Jesus Christ torn to shreds by the scourge of the Roman soldiers. 
His hair plucked from His head and His beard. His eyes closed almost completely shut from being beaten so badly. His head pierced with thorns. His hands and His feet nailed to a cross. It is a gruesome religion. And folks, we do not apologize for that. Listen, people want the Spirit of Jesus without the Incarnation. They want death without pain. Sacrifice without blood. But without the body, the pain, the blood, the crucifixion, Christianity is meaningless. Sacrifice, listen folks, sacrifice, real sacrifice cannot be sanitized. You can't, and you know that. True sacrifice cannot be sacrificed. Sacrifice has always been costly and bloody. Another Presbyterian denomination, not ours, uh, redid their hymnal, I don't know, two, three years ago. Some of you may have seen it was in the national news. It was a Presbyterian, the biggest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. They redid their hymnal. And they went through and they expunged all the references to blood. They even took uh, 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 the Getty song out and, and changed the words. And the Gettys threatened to file suit against them and say, you can't change our songs, that's our lyrics. You know, they couldn't say anything to Isaac Watts because he's already dead, right? But the Gettys are still alive. And so they said, no, no, you can't. If you're going to use our hymn, you have to use it in there with the references to blood. Otherwise, take our hymn out of your hymnal. We want the Spirit of Jesus without the blood. And folks, you can't have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. Let me leave you with this, and I'm sorry it's taking a little bit longer this morning than I'd hoped, but let me leave you with this story. Some of you have read Mark Twain's uh, uh, story, uh, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Have any of you read that book? Connecticut? Or if you've not, you, maybe you've seen the movie with Bing Crosby. No? Okay, we'll pass that up and go to the next thing. <laughs> in the movie, King Arthur, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, as a story that Mark Twain wrote about this Connecticut Yankee who, uh, uh, who gets a bonk on the head, and when he wakes up, he's not in the 19th century anymore. He's back in King Arthur's day. And he gets to meet King Arthur, who at that time is elderly. And of course, the, the, the Connecticut Yankee knows all these magic tricks and stuff. He knows how to make fire from a lighter and things like that. And so it just amazes everybody. And he's a magician now. See, he becomes a court magician. And he's, and he's with King Arthur. And so he tells King Arthur, you know, King Arthur, you don't really know what the life of your people is like. So what you need to do is dress up in peasant garb and let you and I go through the countryside and let's go meet the people and you be dressed in prayer. They won't know you're the king and you can find out what's really going on with your people. And of course in the book and, and the movie, it's very humorous, a lot of uh, uh, humor. It's, it's very funny. But in the book, there's this chapter. Uh, I looked at it last night. Chapter 29, I think. The smallpox hut. The smallpox hut. The king and uh, uh, the Connecticut Yankee come to this hut. It's a hovel. Just a peasant woman living there. And she says this. She calls out to them and says, For the fear of God, tarry not here. Don't stay here. Fly. This place is under God's curse. 
This house is under the curse of God. The king replies, let me come in and help you. You're sick and in trouble. So they go in and anyway, the the, the woman asked the king to go upstairs into the loft and check on her daughter who was sick. Husband had already died. King goes up. Listen to what the Yankee is saying in his narration. It was a desperate place for him to be in. It might cost him his life. He could get smallpox. But it was no use to argue with him. The king disappears up the ladder. There was a slight noise from the direction of the dim corner where the ladder was. It was the king descending. I could see that he was bearing something in his arms, assisting himself with his other arm. He came forward into the light and upon his breast lay a slender girl of 15. She was but half conscious. She was dying of smallpox. He Here was heroism at its last and loftiest possibility. Its utmost summit. This was challenging death in the open field of battle unarmed. With all the odds against the challenger. No reward set upon the conquest. No admiring world in silks and cloth of gold to gaze and applaud. Yet the king's bearing was serenely brave as it had always been in those cheaper contests where night meets night in equal fight and clothed in protecting steel. He was great now. Sublimely great. The rude statues of his ancestors in his palace should have no addition. I would see, I would see to that that there would be an addition. And it would not be a mailed king in armor killing a giant or a dragon like the rest. It would be a king in commoner's garb bearing death in his arms. This is a picture, folks, of Jesus Christ who dressed in commoner's garb who suffered the brutality, the sprinkling of blood, the sacrifice that it took, so that grace, look at the text, grace and peace may be multiplied. How do you get grace and peace? How could Peter possibly have suggested that folks like us could receive grace and peace? He does it by the shocking, scandalous idea that the king would dress in peasant's garb go into the house of smallpox. No cure, no vaccine at that time. It was a death sentence. Take the child with smallpox in his arms and save them. That's our Savior. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You for the kindness that You've shown us and helping us to understand the tension of this world that we live in. And we ask, Father, that You would fill us with Your Spirit. There are probably some hard days coming, not only in the rest of the world, but certainly here in the United States, where 
we're going to have to stand up for our faith regardless of the cost, where the sacrifices may be real and bloody. And I pray, Holy Jesus, that You will secure us to Yourself by Your electing power of love and salvation. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.